when Iron Mike gets up, he grabs the ball, one run scores, he makes that famous throw into the upper deck. <laughs> well, we'll be back in five minutes, gang. Let's give him a hand. Oh. Oh, we're on the air again. Oh. We're back on the air. W-O-R, chickened out. <laughs> Listen, since we're... I'll tell you, you know, when you talk about stories of defeat, and you know, I think this is the basic lure of the Mets, seriously. I think that the, the lure of defeat... Hey, come on, Eddie's out here. I think the lure of defeat is one of the strongest lures that we all have. That because every one of us secretly believes he is a loser. You know, seriously, he really does. I think even presidents believe it. Can you imagine LBJ waking up in the morning? He puts on his socks, you know. He's putting on his socks. And he hears Huntley and Brinkley, they're on the TV, you know. You know, that's the greatest position to be in, is to be the commentator on life. Commentators never get defeated. Huntley and Brinkley can never make a mistake. All they can do is smile wryly at others' mistakes. Oh, yeah, that's the great position to be in. It's, it's great, really, to be a guy that has a sign in your hand that says, How long? You know, you walk around with a sign or, or, or a sign that says, Burn a city hall! That's a great way to be. Can you imagine the terrible feeling it must be to wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning and be the mayor of New York? Talk about losers! Boy! I am serious. That is losing by definition. <laughs> like today, no, no, seriously, like today, one candidate came on today, right today, and he made a comment about a housing development in Staten Island. Well, now, you know, normally this doesn't mean anything. He made a big thing about that, what they ought to do about the housing development in Staten Island. And just two hours before that, the mayor had said, the reason we can't do anything about the housing development in Staten Island is that there's a law against it. <laughs> that didn't stop the candidates. <laughs> so it's a heck of a lot better to be a candidate <laughs> than to be in. And I keep thinking of those, those moments, you know, can you imagine, can you imagine LBJ getting up in the morning, see, and he's putting on his socks. You never imagine a president putting on his socks. <laughs> they have come back from the laundry. And you know how the laundry makes them into little golf balls? And he can't get his foot in it, you know? And finally he says, damn this thing! He throws the sock down, and he goes to his drawer, and there's no socks. <laughs> So he has to go back and make with these socks. The laundry comes back tomorrow, you know. And he's putting his socks on. He finally gets them on. How many of you have had to do... I, you know, this must be a male thing. I don't think it's a woman thing. 
almost every man has a drawer full of about 75 unused socks. <laughs> you know those terrible light blue ones with the clocks that run up the side? You know, those really ugly socks. And you can't, you know, you just can't get yourself to throw socks away. And socks that have shrunk. Other socks, you know one of the great things that happens to socks, ladies, in case you don't know, is that the tops come apart. <laughs> you know, all that top, it comes out and it starts slowly seeking down. And by 10 o'clock in the morning, your sock has worked down and is now wrapped around your big toe. <laughs> all by itself, you know. Well, well, I, I just, you know, I can just see the president in the morning. He's putting on his socks, and he's only got one pair, and he puts them on, and he, they're these real tight ones, and they've got a hole in the end, so he has to fold it over. How about that, man? Or either that, or it's got a hole in the heel, see? For those of you who are chicks who don't know about this, is a trick. The hole in the heel is done this way. You pull it down... <laughs> over your heel like that, see? You hold it like that, and then you put your shoe on real quick. You try to catch it, and bing, up it goes. And the, heel, the hole is now up here. Well, well, can you imagine the president now, see? He's got his only pair of socks on. They're shrunk, and the tops have all gone to hell, you know, and they're rolling up. And now he's standing up before a giant press conference. And he's afraid to get to this side of the lectern because they'll see his socks are falling down. <laughs> well, you know, you never think of that kind of thing to do with the president, and yet it's obvious that it must happen. I'll never forget one of my great moments. I, I, I just can't tell you what a great moment it was for me to, to be present at this historic moment for me. I am out in the Midwest, see, and I'm at this big event, and they've got... Well, they've, <laughs> they've got three Johns. <laughs> you know, it's that big an event. And uh, there was a lot of byproducts of crowds. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> and it was just one of those the things. I'm about, I'm about 15, 16 years old, you know, and there's a, there's a big famous star who's on the show and all that stuff. And I get that fantastic urge, you know, and I run in there and I'm all by myself and suddenly in through the door comes a famous movie star. I mean, you don't expect that this, you know, somehow, you know, you, you think in terms of movie stars as always sitting on horses <laughs> or wearing big hats or shooting it out, you know, or, or, or making love to these fantastic... But all of a sudden, he's in this place with me. And I discover we're alike. Fantastic. Well, I, I, you know, I, I don't know what to say. What do you say, you know? And I, I'm, I'm in a, so I go over and I'm washing my hands, and I'm watching. And he finishes, and he comes over, and he washes his hands with, you know, next to me. And I can hardly wait for him to go out. Because <laughs> I wanted to use the same one. I could always say, you know, that me and Cary Grant, you know. <laughs> well, these... <laughs> These are the brief moments of total victory that we have in our lives.
But most of our lives are concerned with a series of petty defeats. And so eventually we begin to assume the attitude inside of the loser. Have you ever noticed that Yankee fans just can't understand why Met fans are Met fans? Have you noticed that? It's like two religions. Completely set. In fact, I think there is a religious war going on out there. I don't know whether you've seen the Mets lately, but all the trappings now have begun to coalesce. The trappings of ritual. Have you noticed the big signboards they carry? They wear strange helmets. The fans out there, they have passwords. Like, we love Svoboda. This is obviously a foreign tongue. And, and, and you notice that the announcers that announced the Mets have given up talking about baseball. They don't even mention that there's a game going on out there. In fact, that camera spends more of its time, says, oh, there's the famous doctor from Hackensack who's uh, leading his fans. And that guy has given, he doesn't watch baseball games. Have you ever watched that guy? There's a whole series of Mets pseudo-celebrities developing. Like this clutch, you know, with the big yellow thing. He's I, I keep worrying about his patience. <laughs> you have that worry about that? You know, he's out there and he's got this thing, go swivel. He's still got things that say, uh, go uh, Marv. Yes, he's got one that, you know, it's the one that says, hooray for Elio Chacon. <laughs> How many of you, all right, I'll, I'll ask you, speaking of trivia connected with the Mets, I think a lot of little secret things have disappeared about this ball team that nobody wants to admit to. How many of you can tell me the name of an ex-Met who has led the American League at, at least three or four times this year in runs batted in and in home runs? What's his name? Felix Mantia. How many people know he's an ex-Met? He had, by the way, he's hired an entire press agency to keep that out of the papers. <laughs> he doesn't even admit it, boy. In a way, he wails that ball. You know, he never was a real Met. Well, there's a funny thing about this Met mystique. And I, I listened to the other day an announcer, one of the announcers. There's nothing like a Met announcer. Honestly, they have contributed to the Met mystique far more than Ron Hunt has who's a real ball player. They don't talk much about him. <laughs> They've contributed to this myth. And the other day, here is an actual thing I took off WOR Channel 9. We broadcast them, you know. And uh, speak of losers. <laughs> Isn't it just kind of fitting that WOR also broadcast the Hercules Theater? <laughs> One of the worst film shows in the history of TV with all those Preparation H commercials running. <laughs> How about those great scientific reports these guys are always making? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny to see Hercules, you know. Have you ever seen that Hercules thing? That we got a thing called Hercules Theater. You never knew Steve Reeves made all those fantastically bad movies. And they're always dubbed in some strange language. They're not speaking Italian. They're speaking movie dub talk. <laughs> and you see the crowds carrying torches and he's down there and the lions are roaring. And then they cut away to a Preparation H commercial. 
How about that for reality in the midst of special spectacle? Well, the Mets are part of Hercules Theater. The Mets are part and parcel of the whole world of camp. How many of you thought of that? This is a camp ball team. It's not a real ball team, and that really is the essence of camp, is to look like the real thing, but to play it up. Like a camp artist is an artist who plays artists, but sells people pork and beans. No, seriously, that's, that's the whole essence of camp. And so the Mets are part of this world of uh, Channel 9 and the Million Dollar Movie. They're all part and parcel. So the other day, the Met announcer, I wonder how many of you heard this, they were playing Baltimore. No, they were playing, excuse me, they were playing the Phillies. Richie Allen, I remember, was involved. And the Phillies were driving hard, see? And the Mets, of course, are just being Mets, you know? And the announcer said, he says, well, ladies and gentlemen, he said, uh, and there's a runner on first. I can see it. He can't keep it from me. It's a Philly on first, see? And he's standing around out there, and he's walking around. And the announcer says, don't forget, folks, next, uh, next Monday is Banner Day. Uh, we're going to have Banner Day. We expect over 1,700 wonderful banners. All of you folks who remember last year, the, uh, there's a drive out to center field. It's bouncing off the wall. The runner is rounding first, and he's into the second with a stand-up double. And don't forget, friends, you can vote this year on the banners. Uh, yes, uh, send your name and address to Banners here in care of WOR Channel 9, Rheingold Banner Contest. There's a long drive. It's in the upper deck. That makes the score 7-3. to three. You know, uh, Lindsay, I think last year's Banner Day is not nearly as good as what we're going to have this year. And then the camera picks up eight kids saying, we love Ron Swoboda. And the ball game is going on down there, you know. <laughs> It's being played underground. <laughs> well, I suspect that one of the things, of course, there's two things that go to being a Met fan. One is the obvious identification of being for a loser. And you know how they have, have they called it the team of youth? Youth today thinks it's a loser. Are you aware of that? That almost every kid under 20 thinks that he was born Holden Caulfield. <laughs> he was born a beautiful, sensitive person. He was born a person with great insight and love for all of humanity. And these klutzes don't understand it. These idiots like mothers and fathers and people and teachers, and the fuzz and the whole world, you know. <laughs> and so they identify with the Mets, you see who really, in a sense, are defying gravity. <laughs> the Mets, to a man, almost with maybe one or two exceptions, really should be playing in the International League. You know, they're defying gravity. They're in the major leagues, but they should be a little bit lower. Now, part of that thing can be found in the desire for all sensitive people to be applauded. And I think part of the Met mystique is it's a live television show where they spend all of their time picking up the crowd. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how people will jockey now for position where they know? They know that the camera, you know, picks up this section a lot because foul balls come in here, see? Yeah, oh yeah, I sat down and I sat in the lower deck the other day and, and these Met fans 
spent the entire pre-game 15, 20 minutes looking up to see a real live Lindsey Nelson, you know. They said, there's Bob Murphy. Now, now look, now look, Charlie, there's camera three, see. When the red light goes on, I want you to get up and you wave this way, and I'll go this way, and I'll hold the hat up at the same time. They were preparing their act. <laughs> they were rehearsing. And in fact, I saw whole groups of people back at first base, all rising. One of them would say, all right, now all together, up, go! And they'd go up like that. The game hasn't even started. They're practicing for their big moment on camera. And the Mets are playing up to that, to the hilt. And eventually, you know what's happening now? I suspect that the package is going to take over from the reality. Now, are you aware that in most cereal packages today, there is less cereal than there ever was? There's more package. And now they have these big dynamic packages that blow up when you buy them, you know? Or they would Oh, yeah, these great colors, you know, tigers are laughing out of them, and lions. They've got one cereal simply called Life. I kind of think that's all-inclusive. Can you imagine sitting down to a bowl of Life? You know, with the new Super G vitamin, you know? And, and you're sitting down to a big bowl of Life, and you got skim milk on it because you're getting fat. And you sweeten it with saccharin. <laughs> oh man, how true of life. <laughs> well, well this, <laughs> this, there's a doctor, he knows. <laughs> well, this whole, this whole problem of being a winner and a loser at the same time is a difficult one in our time. Now, for example, nothing makes a truly dedicated, and I've been incidentally involved in several demonstrations, a truly dedicated demonstrator who believes that he is an underdog, nothing makes them matter than to win. You know, they all arrive at the city hall with the signs and they say, knock it off! Kill the mayor! Shame! And the mayor comes out and says, you're right. You're right. And then you ought to hear what they say. That shows what a phony you are, huh? <laughs> you know, it's very difficult, you know, because we're all this schizoid thing. We're winner and loser at the same time. That Met fans don't know whether they really want the Mets to win. They really don't. There's a very difficult problem to face there. Well, <laughs> I, I will give you an example of that kind of loser quality. I have, a, I have a little note here which reminded me of a story. It scares the you-know-what out of me because I was present. Now, get this. Hold on. Before we go any further, this is WOR AM and FM New York. And I want to read this to you because I was present at a situation exactly like this. You know, all of us see movies about the Army. We all see things called combat, McHale's Navy. I mean, these are really realistic about the war, you know. Really was like that on a PT boat, you know. Ah, yeah, we see things called broadside and all this stuff, all this pap about the way wars really are. Well, I'm going to tell you a story of one of the greatest embarrassing moments I've ever been witness to. 
and thank God it didn't happen to me. Listen to this story. Milwaukee. Now, do you know anything about Milwaukee? Well, let me tell you if you don't know. Milwaukee is a town of beer drinkers. Oh, yeah, I'm telling you, beer comes out of the taps there. These are sauerkraut eaters. These are fist fighters. Oh, yeah, Milwaukee is a tough town. And they grow tough guys. That's why, you know, they're having this hassle with their ball team. They fist fight all the way through life. And Milwaukee, but their great rival, you know how Newark keeps feeling cheated? Because it looks across the river and sees New York. I mean, so close and yet so far. Well, Milwaukee is so Chicago it can taste it. And so it hates Chicago. Oh, they hate Chicago. They hate the Chicago Cubs. And so they breed a whole group of guys. Everybody living in Milwaukee is a fighter because he fights from the very beginning living in the shadow. Well, this is from Milwaukee. The parents of a young Marine, reportedly a Marine. Do any of you know what it's like to go through basic training in the Marines? Well, let me tell you, the Marines start where the infantry stops. Oh, yeah, this is tough, man, all the way down the line. They, they shave their heads all the way down to their bottoms, you know? They just shave it all the way up and down, you know? And they, they put special ears on these guys that stick out. Their necks are like cords, you know? Oh, yeah, this is the story of the Marines. Listen to this. The parents of a young Marine reportedly scheduled for duty in Vietnam have asked President Johnson that their son not be sent into combat because of bad eyes. <laughs> uh, these two parents have written to the president in the case of their son, Dusan. He's got troubles already with a name. <laughs> I mean, I, you know how it felt to grow up all of your life with the name Gene spelled with a J? Listen, I fist fought my way through every grade in school. How do you think I got so aggressive? So wiry? Well, I can imagine a kid named Dusan. That is problems right there. Oh, I feel for you, kid. He's 18, and they said that their son spent all but the first three months of his duty in the Marines playing the clarinet. <laughs> and are they sending him to Vietnam? Well, <laughs> all I could say is, can you imagine Dusan? Can you imagine him explaining this to the guys in the barracks? <laughs> well, let me tell you this. <laughs> oh, you know, nobody thinks about those little things. Can you imagine all of a sudden some guy is sitting in the barracks in the 1st Marine Division, and you know there's this klutz next to him? And he's this 18-year-old lunk who weighs 270 pounds. He's got two little eyes like steel marbles. And this big clutch, this corporal's reading this. He says, hey, listen to this, guys. Some guy, <laughs> some guy's old lady wrote to the president not to send him to the, to the Vietnam front. The guy's a Marine. His name is uh, Dusan.
Private D.W. Klutzmeyer suddenly becomes Dusan Klutzmeyer. And all of a sudden, the entire crowd is looking at him. Well, let me tell you one time, I actually was present at a situation like that. I was in a company that was what they call enlisted, which meant that we had enlisted in the army. Well, now, many of us had been brought in under false pretenses. Uh, <laughs> actually, I'll never forget what they told me. I was getting out of high school. See, I was 17, and this captain showed up. You know, there's a war going on, see? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's always some 12-year-old 4F who hollers, yeah! <laughs> well, there was a real war going on, you know? <laughs> And, and I'm 17 years old, and, and I've seen a lot of Errol Flynn movies. And, you know, and I had this big crush on this chick named Dorothy Anderson. And, you know, I'm walking around, I'm a scratching kid. And this guy, and he was a captain. I'll never forget. And he, he, you know, he had a fantastic uniform. And he had crossed signal flags on his lapel. A signal corps officer. I had never seen one. And he said, uh, I want to talk to all of you boys here who are members of the Hammond High Radio Club. <laughs> I'm a member of the radio club, see, and I'm a ham, and I'm 17. He says, we have made a special arrangement for young men who want to choose the branch of their service. How would you young men like to go through college study electronic engineering, become first lieutenants in nine years. <laughs> we will send you to college. You'll have this wonderful time. We'll pay you at the same time. And then after it's all over, you'll be a first lieutenant in the Signal Corps. Now, otherwise, if you don't sign up, we know who you are. <laughs> well, you know... <laughs> I thought, gee, that's great. You know, I'll go to college, and I'll, I'll be in school, and for four years, by then maybe the war is over, I'll be a first lieutenant, and I'll be like Errol Flynn, and Dorothy Anderson love me, and all that stuff, see? So I go up and I talk to him, along with Schwartz and Flick and a couple of other guys, and he says, he says, all right, he says, fill out these forms, and we'll let you know. Well, this is funny. I've got a real form, and it says Army of the United States, and it's an enlistment blank. Now, that's different from filling out a draft form. You know, it's very exciting. It says uh, age. It says training. Put down all your teachers and write down the grades you got. Write down where you were born, what your mother's maiden name was, when she was born. You know, I never thought of asking my mother exactly how old she was. You know, that sort of thing. So I sat down, I filled out this form, and I went home. And two weeks go by, and I get another form in the mail, which I sent back without even mentioning at home. A week goes by, and my mother greets me at the door. I'm home from school, you know. And she says, the army called. <laughs> this is the army called, Mom. 
She says, yes, are you joining the army? I said, no, Ma, they're just sending me to college. <laughs> they like me. They're sending me to school, Ma. And she says, oh, that's different. And she signed the dotted line. Do I have to tell you? Ten days later, I come home from school, and there is a big, fat envelope. And the envelope is in like 27 copies and mimeographed. And had all these names, like 100,000 guys. And it says, the following shall report June 6th. The following shall report to Fort Sheridan with the equipment following issued. One bus ticket, one ticket to the train station. The following men shall report. And way down it says, Shepard, J.P., One six oh nine eight nine four six PBT. It didn't say anything about Harvard. <laughs> I didn't know that they had started a college. I didn't. Well, all of a sudden, I find myself in this place. I'm in the army now. I mean, really, the army. And there were thirty-nine of us there who had brought been brought in under the same scene. But now we're beginning to get excited. We got suits, we got hats, and you know, you hear guys marching around out there, and the first thing they holler out of the barracks is, you'll be sorry, you'll be sorry. All of the guys that have been in the army eight minutes are hollering at. You could all tell the veterans, they never said nothing, they just walked around, you know. They never hollered, you'll be sorry. Well, here we are, you know, we're all excited, and they call us down to the day room. Now, the day room is kind of like, if you can imagine, a pool room run by the YMCA <laughs> with little touches of prison life. <laughs> you know, there's a piano and there's a, there's a ping pong table that comes complete and equipped with two staff sergeants. They come with it. This is called Ping Pong Table M1 slash Revised Model Number 2 with two staff sergeants that occupy the position at the end of each table playing. That's to keep the other yucks from, you know, getting their mind off shooting and all that stuff. And there, 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 there we are in the day room and this captain, it's another captain now and a very different kind of captain. A very different kind of captain. This captain says, you men's! Here we are, you know. Fresh out of Hammond High, you know, we're men's now. That's some of the great army words, that's one of them. They say, you men's! That's the plural of men. Of which each one of us is one issue slash two men. You men's have been specially selected for our signal combat course. Now, you guys, a lot of you guys have been hearing about this is the new intellectual army. <laughs> a lot of you know what that is. You've been hearing that this is the new technical army? Well, it is. And the technique comes from where I kick you. <laughs> I have spent nine years learning all the various ways 
And if you think you're going to goof off in his company, you have got another thing coming. You! You know, I'm sitting there, goof off. I didn't know what... I didn't even know what the word goof off meant. <laughs> Except that's not the phrase he used. <laughs> I'll never forget the first, after a year in the Army, getting home on a three-day pass, and Dorothy Anderson, this beautiful little Dresden doll girl, used that phrase. Only she used the Army initial designation for it. And I couldn't figure out all night whether she knew what she was talking about or not. <laughs> I'm surprised at the number of things, you know, like the other day I heard this, this whack corporal on one of these jazzy TV shows use a phrase which in the Army meant only one thing. I wonder how many GIs suddenly jumped up and says, how can they do it on television? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm sitting there, see, and he's giving us this talk. Well, I'm with 37 guys. He said, you guys are on your way to a place called... He's building it up, see. You are going to Camp Crowder. Now, I don't know what you've heard about that cow or Belson. But Camp Crowder stops about 10 feet short of where they to begin. Now that's where you're going. And this outfit is going to be the best damn combat signal wire laying outfit in the whole damned army. There was only one word in the entire phrase we knew what he meant. And we didn't think he was referring to that. And we, for the first time, I realized that this army was not what it was cracked up to be. It was like 10,000 times more. Well, we are put on a train. And we go off into the night. And we travel day and night into the sidings, out of the sidings, we're on this troop train. And we are gradually becoming soldiers. And we finally arrive at Camp Crowder. And it's raining. It rained for seven straight years there. Are you aware that they've had a drought there in that area since World War II stopped? All I got to say to, to, to Mayor Wagner, if we want to do something about rain, draft about 40,000 guys, put them in a camp right next to the reservoir up at Croton, and it will rain till hell won't have it. It'll just come down. Put these guys through the infantry course, well, it started to rain. It's raining steadily. And I remember, oh, you have no, you know, most of us think we know periods of depression in civilian life. Well, I knew how it felt to stand out there the third day in the Army. And I realize now, they're not kidding. They're really going to go through with it. And they're keeping me there, you know. And I can remember standing out there in my raincoat. It's five o'clock in the morning. Now, I don't know how Missouri arranged it, but it was simultaneously hot and cold. <laughs> it was simultaneously dusty and muddy. And I remember standing in the company street, it's 5.15 in the morning, and we're having roll call. And I'm wearing a helmet liner. 
Hardly any of you know the kind of depression that settles into the human soul when you hear the sound of an incessant rain beating on the top of your helmet liner. <laughs> oh, you know, they don't talk about this. You know, this is a big helmet, see? And it's going... <laughs> and you're, you can't hear anything. You know, just... <laughs> and it drips on your nose, see? And it runs down your back. There's a little chute in the helmet liner <laughs> that brings it right down your spinal cord in a little... In a little thin trickle of ice, you know, it comes right down, and we're standing there in our raincoats. Now, these raincoats were made out of rubber cheesecloth. <laughs> and they, they would just sort of, you know, like filter out the frogs and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth, you know, and you're wet. You're just wet all the time. You sleep wet. You're, you eat wet. You go to the john wet. You... You fist fight wet, you do everything wet, you see, and it's raining like this. And off in the distance, we see the blue hills of the Ozarks. And you hear an occasional dull report. It's the hillbillies taking target practice on Company K. Oh, they used to like to sit up in the hills and pick off guys down in the camp. Yeah, damn Yankees, pow! Oh, yeah, many's the time we're walking. You, you got to hit the dirt, and you lay down it. It's another Sears Roebuck 22. <laughs> you got so you can hear the sound of that, that slug, you know, with the little ears on <laughs> Oh, yeah, we were battle-hardened. So I'm standing there. It's about three days into this scene. That's when the realization begins to set in. I suspect this is true of almost everything in life. I suspected about the third day that a guy wakes up after he's gotten married. She's still there. <laughs> but she's not going, you know? <laughs> oh, wow, you know, and, and there's a lot of little things like that. Like, you take a job, you know, you get a job in this place. And they put you down in the mail room or some terrible place or in the Costa County Department. And the first day you're all excited. They're teaching, they're teaching, they're teaching you new kinds of red tape, you know. <laughs> it's all exciting, right, this minute, see. And they say every morning at 10.15, this guy will call up. He'll call up from the shipping department and he'll say, Yowza. He thinks that's funny. He'll say, Yowza. And you say, okay, number seven, Sheet mill, 142842. Uh, we go to bed at 722. Okay, Jack? Yowza. That's all he says. And you think it's kind of cute. Well, the third day, you pick up the phone. And the guy says, Yowza. And you pick this thing up, and you know he's not kidding. And this is going to be your life. There's no escaping it. By the end of the fourth day, you're drinking. <laughs> By the end of the fifth day, you're telling dirty jokes down by the water cooler. By the end of the sixth day, you've joined the union. By the end of the seventh day, you're very seriously reading the New York Times want ads. By the end of the 23rd year, you just sort of stand. You pick up the phone, he says, yowza. You say, number seven stack, 26 track. Well, that's what happens in the army. By the end of the third day, you look out and you know they're not kidding. And I'm standing there with my M1. Next to me is 
Zinsmeister with his M1. Here's Gasser standing. Over on the other side of me is Chris Metropolis. I will never forget Chris Metropolis. He was, he was hyphen-shaped. And Chris Metropolis was one of these guys, when he stood at attention, his gut would stick out like that, see? And, and I remember every day the captain would come along and say, Put in the gut, Metropolis! He would go, bang! And Metropolis would go like that. He would, he would go back and forth. And Chris Metropolis was our hot rock. Chris, you know, have you ever watched, have you ever looked in these army stores on 42nd Street? And you see these jazzy uniforms for sale? that are different from the GI uniforms. Special hats, you know, with a snotty cock to them, you know, with the things that stick up, with the gold stuff all around there. And you can get field jackets that are, that are cut, that are cut by tailors. All little fancy stuff. Well, Chris was the first hot rock GI in our company. All of us had GI hats, you know, that were this kind of, well, you know what color they were. <laughs> An army phrase for that color. <laughs> Again, I can't go into that. Well, we had the standard hats. Chris had this dark forest green hat with the two little rockers sticking up. You know, he'd stand there, this uniform cut in. And Chris was our hot rock. Next to Chris, Roswell T. Edwards would stand. Roswell was our, uh, well, again, there's an army phrase. <laughs> Roswell was the guy that would polish the insides of the brass doorknobs. And he was the guy that made life a veritable hell for the rest of us. He loved it. There are some people who like washing walls. And they really do. They say, look at this. Hey, this stuff really works, you guys. Come on, look at that. I saw Roswell clean the latrine. It was a work of art. It was like the Eroica Symphony. I'll tell you, you the, the, the Johns never sounded the way they did when Roswell T. Edwards was latrine orderly. It was, it was like going into a church. You could see love everywhere, you know? And Roswell, oh yeah, you know all of you hear all the time in your life about KP, you never hear about LO. That's latrine orderly. And that's 50 times more interesting than KP. And you know, nothing is more heartwarming than to see a latrine orderly at five o'clock in the morning standing proudly in his latrine with the bulbs gleaming. You know, they gleam there like emeralds. They're all lined up in his mirrors or sh and he's got a tank of hot water and the floor is so clean you can eat your eggs off of it and everything, you know. And he stands there like that. And off in the distance, the company is calling roll. It's that one, it's the moment of truth for the latrine order. It's like the moment that they've got the bull now in the chute and they're polishing his horns and the assistant is now taking the gate and is about to let that bull go. It's, you know, there must be a great moment for the matador when he's walking out there and he's strutting around and there ain't no bull in sight. <laughs> he's waving his hat, you know, bowing. And the band is going He swirls his cape Then all of a sudden Some killjoy Pulls the thing out And 
Ah, this bull walks around, he looks around, and he spots this guy going, and the next thing you know, he's up in the upper deck. Well, that is a latrine orderly. Five minutes before, the first sergeant hollers, dismissed! Because what happens is everybody is standing there, you know, and you're hollering. Here, they're hollering to roll, you know. It's going along there. There's a shepherd, Schwartz, Smith, blah, 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 blah. And you go, yeah, yeah. And there's always one southerner in every company that hollers, yo! <laughs> Boy, you just want to kick them in the teeth, you know? They learn it from the first five minutes they're in the Army, the real jazzy Army. Yo, yo! Yo, they spit. Cassiel Ledbetter, yo! You know, you just want to turn around and say, all right, you, you, you just know he's going to become a second lieutenant. And he's going to holler, yo, 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 yo! Well, this is, the, this is the scene. And then there is a moment when the first sergeant walks around in front of the company, back and forth, they're all lined up. And then he says, all right, you guys, Breakfast will be in 10 minutes, the mess hall. Any of you guys want to go and shave now? Go. You've got five minutes between breakfast. And you're going to have to fall out because today we are going out on a raffle range. That means we will not be back until maybe 10, 11 o'clock tonight. You better shave. All right. Dismissed. And the bull is out of the chute. 47,000 guys tear towards that latrine. <laughs> there are only 12 sinks. There is nine and a half quarts of hot water. And there are 175 guys, all of whom got to shave now. And the latrine orderly sees it. Boom! And the water goes on. They start spitting on the floor and the johns are flushing. And 10 minutes later, they're out. And he is left with the greatest collection of human effluvia. Blood on the mirrors and cigarette butts and oh wow, you know. Well, Roswell T. Edwards loved that world. <laughs> he was that kind of a GI. He loved that feeling of being down there and standing and waiting for that thunderous herd. But the significant member of our company was a guy named John Stanley Spafford. John Stanley Spafford was the toughest guy that we had in the infiltration course. Spafford, you, he was a nut. This guy would go up, you know, the 20-foot walls. This guy would go up and only hit the wall twice. You know, he's up on the top. Come on, you guy, let's go. He's swinging down like that. Spafford was a maniac. And everybody, we are on the, the firing range. Spafford, he pulled targets. Spafford shot 197 out of a possible 200. Spafford even took up knot tying. He went in for first aid stuff. And then one day it happened. One day it happened. I will never forget. We are all sitting in the barracks. The first sergeant comes in. And he says, all right. It's in the fan. 
And we all, all immediately, that sick feeling. <laughs> What's this? He says, get up on your feet. And all of us stood there. In five minutes, I want this entire barracks to fall out, and I want you to report at the company theater. And he walks out. And all of us, what, what happened? What happened? What happened? Well, five minutes later, we're sitting in the theater, and they're showing a newsreel. A newsreel. You know the kind with the eyes and the ears and the world upon you. Da 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 da. Paramount News takes you here, there, and everywhere in the world. Da 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 da. In Hitler's Festung Europa, and you see the Germans marching. Then what the heck are they showing us this? And then they have the bit, you know, about the Kentucky Derby. They say today the Kentucky Derby was won by blue coal going away when... We're watching this thing. All of a sudden on the screen came two people. And a reporter is, uh, is interviewing them. And the reporter says, uh, Mr. and Mrs. John Spafford, we have heard that you have petitioned the president that your son should be excused from the army. Is that right? And Mr. and Mrs. Spafford say, yeah. You see, John was always a sickly kid, and we think that, that John has gotten a raw deal in the Army. We got a letter from John that says that the food is terrible, and I don't know how many people know this, but, but th those, all those boys have to go to the same bathroom. John wrote it to us here, and we have written to President Roosevelt, and we're all sitting. And you, all of a sudden, in the silence, you heard this long, thin moan. John Spafford didn't even know about it. His mother had petitioned President Roosevelt to get him out of Company K. And the sergeant got up in front of him. Palisades has a rise. Palisades has a fall.